You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you are challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas continues his series on Christ through the ages, now looking at 500 years of alternative Christ. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. Christ through the ages, lesson 27. In this final installment in the sub-series on Christ as understood through the course of the history of the church, we'll focus on the period from the Reformation onward. Normally, the Protestant Reformation is understood to begin in the 1500s with Martin Luther. Now, in the previous lessons in this sub-series, we looked at Christ as he was preached in the apostolic period, then in the period from the sub-apostolic times to the early Middle Ages, that is, up to the 300s. And then last time we looked at Christ as understood variously in the later Middle Ages. We went all the way from well, from around the year 400 to the year 1400. But now we're in the 1500s. And before we begin this lesson, 500 years of alternative Christs, I wanted to make uh, one suggestion, one that I will not pursue, but you might at some point. It's interesting to see how Christ is depicted in art. Um, it could be sculpture, it could be painting, it could really be any medium. And uh, l- let me explain what I mean. He's certainly depicted in theology, and that's what we've been focusing on, and also in practice, in, in action. But Christ is also depicted, quite literally depicted, in art. Now, theology often tends to follow practice. Everyone's doing a certain thing, and then the theology follows. It's like a justification as written. Trends uh, dictate theology. Example, more and more people want to baptize babies. It's becoming somewhat common by the year 400. Augustine, who's a bishop in North Africa, and he lives 354 to 430, Augustine comes up with the doctrine of original sin as an apologetic for baptizing babies. If the babies have inherited sin, they're born condemned, then baptizing them becomes reasonable. So the theology often follows the the practice. In in many cases, society is setting the agenda. So he's depicted in, in theology and action, but also in art. Now, in early Christianity, there may be no art portraying Jesus. We might have an iconic art, uh, that is, where he's not portrayed himself. Remember, the earliest Christians are Jews. Jews have a commandment not to uh, make idols. That would be uh, the second commandment, uh, as we understand the Decalogue. You know, no gods before me, don't make idols. And so they were reluctant to portray God, just as the Muslims will not portray God. You have an iconic art. Uh, You'd have maybe a cross, and there's certainly evidence that the sign of the cross was made in the first century. Once Jesus is portrayed, he's um, typically a shepherd. He's shown as a human, but the imagery becomes more and more powerful as the church accommodates itself to the empire. Christ is often... uh, sculpted or or made to look like a Greek god. 
And once the church becomes truly political, when you have the church state or Christendom, then he's portrayed as a warrior. And at this time, there's really no inhibition about drawing God, painting God, um, or, or Christ. So you see the development in art. In fact, if you took this all the way into the modern period, and it's, this is very sad, uh, but I guess it was 40 years ago or, or so, Christ was depicted, uh, well, the crucifix, this was supposed to be an example of modern art, a crucifix in a jar of urine. Now, if you tried to pull something like that on the Muslims, you'd have <laughs> loud protests, riots, and people would die. But liberal democracies don't want to be thought narrow-minded, and so uh, money is taken from taxpayers to even endow uh, this kind of thing, to pay for it. Uh, it. Art tells you a lot about society. This isn't my expertise. I really know very little of art, and even if I were doing a podcast on art, it would have to be a video podcast, and I don't have the pictures, <laughs> okay? But I just think it's something you might want to consider later, Christ through the ages, as portrayed not just in action and theology, but in art. Okay, now we're in the Reformation. Everyone is reacting. Uh, the time is right. A reaction against the Catholic Church is nowhere near as dangerous as it used to be. Uh, you might be beyond the reach of the inquisitors. Uh, it was still dangerous, but the political climate was better. And the Protestants who protested against various uh, medieval practices and protested for what they believe the Bible taught gained quite a following. I mean, things reached a boiling point. And there was a more biblically balanced view of Jesus. Uh, going through the motions, just rituals and ceremonies, devoid of feeling or, or meaning, were de-emphasized. Uh, idolatry, in the form of uh, statues, for example, uh, was removed from churches. Faith was stressed. Individual obedience. Many Protestants still baptized babies, but they they insisted that they must grow up with a real faith. But Christ is still a political figure. Luther and Calvin don't seem to have considered that to go all the way back to apostolic teaching, they would need to get rid of Christendom. No church state. Now, there's part of the Reformation. It's called the Radical Reformation. Most of these people, the Anabaptists, most of them were apolitical. They thought, actually, that was a big part of the problem. It was that mixture of power and uh, and, political power and church leadership that had proved so toxic. And they were relentlessly persecuted by the mainstream Protestants because they said our allegiance has to be to Christ even above our allegiance to the state, whereas the mainstream Protestants, like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, might concede that, but they would say probably it's two sides of a coin. If you truly honor Christ, you will honor your state, you will honor your sovereign, and uh, there's nothing really flawed with the idea of a Christian state. Well, so that's one problem. The, the, the Protestants weren't radical enough, but because they emphasized individual faith, which is a, a great thing, and soon you'd have the Enlightenment coming along in the 1700s, this tremendously optimistic spirit about the human mind, the power of humans to to understand the world and to control the world, you know, humanism. Uh, when you add that, uh, the 
exploration of the planet and trade and standards of living, exposure to different cultures. I suppose the cocktail includes many different things, but the stage is set for individualism. More and more people see themselves as private Christians as opposed to part of a community. And the community becomes very important. But as the centuries roll on, uh, you have more and more people saying, Christ, yes, the church, no. Yet, biblically speaking, the church is the body of Christ. So that would be nonsensical. As though you were marrying, you said, yes, I, I will marry Anna, but not her body. Um, I'm not really interested in the body. I just want the idea of Anna. You can't separate the body uh, from the soul, from the essence who the person is. And we must say Christ, yes, and the church, yes. We can make many criticisms of the Reformation. So it was a mixed bag. This is the 1500s. At the end of this process of increased individualism, Jesus, in the absence of scriptural controls, is made over into all kinds of modern Christ. I think of, for example, the Che Jesus. Think of Che Guevara, the revolutionary. Liberation theology, very powerful in Latin America. Taking up arms, if necessary, violence, uh, is valid for the Marxist. It may be valid for the Christians. To create justice in the world, we may have to kill our enemy. Well, that's what I call the Che Jesus, liberation theology. There's the gay Jesus. Think of the LGBT agenda, the lesbian, uh, gay, bisexual, transgender agenda, the gay Jesus. And, and even when I went to my first seminary, and I entered in 1980, even then a huge number of the seminarians at my university were gay. Many professors were gay, and there was a, a church uh, nearby in Boston that was a, a gay church. And this is decades ago. This is not new uh, we have the gay Jesus, a guru Jesus, where Jesus, and this is in connection with Eastern religion, is it's not that different to Krishna. He really just wants you to enjoy your voyage of self-discovery. And he's easily harmonizable with Buddhism or Hinduism. Uh, the E.T. Jesus, Jesus is an alien. Maybe we'll reach his level of, of knowledge and enlightenment one day, but he came here from another planet. <laughs> and this... This may sound extreme, but there are multiple examples of all of these different Jesuses. I just mentioned the Che Jesus, the Gay Jesus, the Guru Jesus, the E.T. Jesus. But there's one that I really want to focus on because this one we run up against all the time. Evangelicalism is part of Protestantism. Evangelicals typically believe in three things. There are three distinctive evangelical beliefs. One is that uh, the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, not necessarily in this order, but the Bible is the Word of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And we too can become sons and daughters of God by faith. We must make our own decision. So far, so good. I, I believe in that. God does reveal himself through Scripture. He does come to our world in Jesus Christ. And no one's brought up a Christian. I mean, you. it, it helps to be in that climate. But you don't become a Christian apart from your own desire, your own will. But most evangelicals go a bit farther, and they believe you become saved through a prayer, 
a simple prayer inviting Jesus into your life. Now, although I believe the sinner's prayer, as it's called, is unbiblical, I don't think it's completely unbiblical. That is, we are supposed to seek in order to find. We are to open our lives to to God. Uh, We should pray. We do want Jesus to come into our hearts. John 14, you know, he promises he will. The Father and the Son will live in us by the Spirit. But we must obey. So if you read John 14 carefully, you'll see that it's not quite so simple as just hearing the gospel and then bowing your head and saying a prayer. Uh, People will ask me, am I an evangelical? Normally I say yes, because I believe in Christ as the Son of God, uh, uniquely the Son of God. I believe that God speaks to me in the scriptures and that no one's born a Christian, you have to make a decision. But the sinner's prayer, the, the, the idea that Christ is outside shivering in the cold, please let him in, typically based on Revelation 3, is where I want us to focus. But before we come to our scriptural study, I want to talk more about this, this Jesus. Most evangelicals don't believe in a Che Jesus, a gay Jesus, or a guru Jesus. But a very tame Christ, one who's extremely nice, yes, they do believe in that. And, and, and let, let, let me explain. God is nice. If we find passages in Scripture that are not nice, that make God look uh, severe, well, either those passages are not important, or maybe they're not inspired, or maybe we're just reading it wrong. But certainly, Christ would not want to upset anyone. Places like Matthew 10, 34, I don't think I've come to bring peace, not peace, but a sword, um, really throw off those who are seeking a tame, non-judgmental Christ. Well, if God is nice and Christ is tame, then we, we would want to be a nice church, a place where no one's offended, everyone's attracted, forgetting that Jesus himself, as sensitive and loving as he was, still polarized the crowds. Some loved him, some hated him. A nice God, a nice Christ, a nice church, nice people. And many unbelievers rightly say, well, why do I need you as Christians to help me be a nice person? Let me just live up to the light that I have and be a person of integrity. And often discussions in evangelism degenerate to this. Well, why do I need God in order to be a good person? And I think that shows our confusion. Most evangelicals, whether they admit it or not, really do hope that God is nice. They want to be part of a nice church. And the goal of following Christ is to be nice people who have a nice experience one day in heaven. But there's nothing in the Bible about God being nice. Patient, yes. Forgiving, fine. Uh, Jesus is gentle, uh, meek. You can find things like that, but never nice, which is virtually a synonym for bland or pleasant or inoffensive. Favorite verses among many evangelicals, John 3.16. Yes, but what about verses 5 and 21? We will be saved. We won't perish if we have faith. But John 3.5 says we have to be baptized. John 3.21, we have to repent. Why do we just pull out a passage on faith? And even then, it's not a passage telling us how to be saved. It's a passage telling us about God's love and the fact that he gives us a way to be saved. Uh, people love Ephesians 2.8. You know, we're, we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that we can't boast. But what about Ephesians 2.10? God's plan is for us to get to work, to be busy. They love Romans 10.9. All you have to do is believe in your heart, right? Confess with your lips, Jesus Lord, and you'll be saved. But that's not a passage telling people how to be saved. He's telling them that 
that we're not saved by keeping the law. We're saved through an orientation of the heart. But Paul's not contradicting himself, what he said earlier in 6.3, that we're baptized into Christ, or even four verses later in Romans 10.13, we call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Well, when Paul called the name of the Lord um, in Acts 22.16, he did it in baptism. That's the time we call on the name of the Lord. Revelation 3.20. So John 3.16, Ephesians 2.8, Romans 10.9, Revelation 3.20. But what about verses, 19, uh, verses 15 to 19? Let's go through our text. I'll make a few observations and we'll conclude this section of our series on Christ through the course of church history. Revelation 3.14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. Okay, in that first verse, we see that Christ is divine. He is the Amen. He's the ruler of God's creation. What, God isn't the ruler of his creation? Well, many things are ascribed to Christ that we would ascribe to God. Creation, ruling, judging, and so forth. It's his divinity. In Revelation, he's the Alpha and the Omega, as we saw in in the beginning of our, our entire series. So he's divine. Secondly, he's demanding. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. He's demanding. And I don't think he's necessarily saying that that, uh, hot is best, cold is next best, lukewarm is the worst. Though if you want to play with the temperatures, lukewarm is the worst. Hot and cold are both good. In water, uh, water is, is good hot, is good cold. But, but not lukewarm. But, uh, it, it's uh, quite creative to think that someone who's cold has no interest in God and someone who is hot is on fire. But maybe we're pressing the analogy too far. However, he does expect us to live for him. And we are not following our calling if we're lukewarm. And because of that, he says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. He's demanding. And he's more specific too. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Well, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Here, he is challenging their materialism. Now, this is Laodicea. The last time I was in Laodicea was actually fairly recently, and uh, the excavations are coming along really well, but a lot is known about this city. Destroyed in an earthquake, it denies, refuses federal assistance, so to speak. Rome would have helped rebuild the city. They say, we got it. In fact, they're destroyed again by an earthquake. The attitude of the Laodiceans is, we are self-sufficient. We don't want handouts. Uh, There was water in the area that they were uh, used to, um, uh, you know, the Romans had a system of aqueducts that could bring water for, from large distance away. But Laodicea was known for lukewarm water. No one likes that. Now, all this is best understood against the background of Laodicea itself. In the region, they made a kind of eye salve. So people would uh, come in order to have eye disorders healed. So he's, he's alluding to the, the eye salve, 
He speaks of white clothes to wear, gold refined to the fire. All these things have a background. So you can't just jump to verse 20. You've got to look at the background. And what's he saying? You guys are so self-sufficient, in a way, individualistic, to the point that you don't really need me. You don't think you need me. You're saying, I got it. I'm rich. I'm all right. Help the other guy. I'm fine. That's not an attitude a Christian should have. Then, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. So that verse I just read, verse 19, well, why is that one always left out by the evangelicals? Love doesn't preclude rebukes. It doesn't preclude tough love, uh, discipline, challenge. We must be earnest and repent. And you know he's not telling people how to become Christians. They were Christians, and they're slipping away, and they're at a very dangerous place. But he tells them to repent. And that is typically, unfortunately, typically left out of the evangelical message. And it's not even a passage telling people how to be saved. It's telling them how to come back. And then, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come and eat with that person and he with me. Because this letter is addressed to the church, and you can see that clearly in verse 14 and also in verse 22, he's not telling non-Christians how to be saved. He's telling lapsing Christians how to resume full fellowship with Christ. They have pushed him outside, and for that he's knocking at the door because he won't force himself on us. But it's not initial salvation he's referring to, though the imagery is not bad, but it doesn't give you enough to work with. And it's certainly fairly dishonest to just use verse 20 and ignore the context. So we have to hear his voice, be willing to hear it, and open the door. And to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Christ is a victor. It is Christos victor, but not in the medieval sense. Christ ascends to the throne in Acts chapter 2, and as a result of that, the Spirit is poured out. This ruling is in the heavenly places. This is not a military political victory. So he's not Christus victor in the medieval sense. And last, as we see, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's one standard for all followers of Christ. So rather than this being Uh, An easy passage telling us that there's a nice Christ who wants to come into our hearts. This is an expression of tough love. It's a divine figure with all authority, making demands, challenging materialism. And most of us live in such materialistic societies, we're not even aware how this leads us away from God. This is what he challenges. It's not even... He's not saying you need to be hot. That's going a little bit beyond the metaphor. But you can be quite enthusiastic in your religious expressions and still be materialistic. So that's no good. Uh, They have to overcome this attitude of materialism. He disciplines them. He wants connection. He's victor, but not in the medieval sense. And there's one standard for all followers of Christ. So in conclusion, the Jesus of the New Testament is the only true Christ. He has promised to live in us, John 14. But that has significant lifestyle implications. So it's up to you and me to show the world the true Christ through our lives and our teaching. And we just had four podcasts 
on Christ as understood in church history. And this one was 500 years of alternative Christ. And there are many Christ today, and you'll see more. In our final three podcasts, we're going in a different direction as we see Christ refracted in the world, first by polytheists, then monotheists, and then we'll talk about the atheists. So how is Christ perceived by the Jews, the Hindus, the Buddhists, the Muslims, um, outsiders, you know, agnostics? How is he perceived? So first we'll look at the polytheists, like Hindus and Buddhists, and then in the podcast after that, monotheists, uh, particularly the Muslims, though also the Jews. And then the final uh, podcast in the series of 30 is called What the Atheists Are Missing. And we're going to talk about atheism and we'll conclude the 30. After that, I'll encourage you to listen to 10 more podcasts on Christ through the ages, all on the subject of worship. I hope this is useful to you and uh, I have a lot more to share. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed Douglas' series on Christ Through the Ages. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas' website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos free to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas' teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.